Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Today we are speaking with Dr. Roz Glogue from the Bee Lab at Sydney University. Roz is a researcher who specialises in native stingless bees with a large network of ordinary citizen pet beekeepers. Let's hear more about bees. Welcome, Roz. Hi, Damien. How are you? Good, thanks. So, Roz, how long have you been studying bees and, and what actually got you interested in them? Ah, um, I guess I have been in the world of kind of bee research on and off a little bit since uh, 2006. So I guess that is quite a long time. Let me let me think about the maths, 15 years or so. Um, but, you know, that back then I was an undergraduate getting excited about research science for the first time. And I did some early research work on bees. I Afterwards, went off and worked on some other organisms, but eventually came back to bees, which I love, um, here at the University of Sydney. So, uh, yes, the, a kind of constant stretch of bee work um, for the past six or seven years, yeah. I don't know if it's easy to answer, but, but what do you love about them? What kept on bringing you back to bees? Oh, um, well, I've over time expanded uh, my love of bees to bees generally, but certainly um, early on, it was the fascination with the social insects. Obviously, we're talking about um, all ants, some bees and some wasps uh, we consider to be social insects. And there's also the termites. They're a bit of an outlier, um, but also social insects. And they have these fascinating complex societies of course with the single kind of reproductive female the queen and then this um you know amazing worker force of hundreds or thousands of female workers um so that that would describe a kind of classic social bee colony like a honeybee or here in australia we have native social bees um which are the stingless bees and it's impossible not to to get absolutely fascinated i think with um these really complex uh, societies, insect societies, and all the complicated behaviours that they have that make them work, and and parallels to our own complex society. The social side's a big a big thing that's coming up as we as we look into these bees more and more. Um, why do you think the general public are becoming more interested in bees? I mean, you're dealing with people mainly. I think you said in the northeastern Australian varieties of bees are being kept as pets not as uh, for harvesting honey why do you think the general public are becoming more interested in bees um there's probably a few different factors i mean i think we are kind of uh living through a period where a lot of people in cities are really keen to reconnect with nature in various ways um and uh, beekeeping, whether it's um, with honeybees, so traditional beekeeping, or uh, with native stingless bees, which is what you're referring to in parts of Australia, you can very easily keep these native bees, which have no sting, which um, is something a lot of people like. Uh, so I think part of it is, you know, the the joy of kind of keeping, you know, native insects, or if they're honeybees, then well, the benefit of the honey and so on. Um, I guess that's part of it. And then why bees specifically, why they're, they're having a bit of a moment with the public, I think, you could argue, in the last 
10 years or so. Do you think there might have been a catalyst for the sudden interest in bees in the general public, like the, the advent of the varroa mite overseas? Do you think that might have contributed to yes. it? Yes. Uh, yes. So, you know, there was, there was a bit of a scare about honeybee population stability, honeybees being um, the major pollinator of our crops all over the world. Um, they're native to Europe and Africa, but uh, they've been introduced everywhere and we use them pollinate our crops, manage pollinators. And you are right that part of the concern uh, about honeybee populations in Europe and the US uh, in the last decade or so has been associated with this uh, mite. It's a parasitic mite um, that feeds on the bees. Um, Varroa destructor is its name. Um, and it's a, a very hardy little parasite uh, that does um, quite does quite a lot of damage to the bees and, and is probably responsible for some big population declines in those parts of the world. And, you know, those concerns have spilled over to Australia, even though we are very fortunate still to be a varroa-free country. So this might does not exist uh, yet in Australia. It's a, a major biosecurity concern for us, but... Um, we don't have it here, but yes, that that definitely was a bit of a catalyst um, and has attracted a, a lot of research and a lot of interest from the beekeeping public. Yep. We have no reason to be concerned yet and that it hasn't arrived here, but I think a lot of people assumed that it had when they heard the news about what this, the potential of this um, varroa was. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to, to and, and reassuring to know that it still hasn't hit us yet. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think there's still kind of widespread acceptance that we won't hold out forever. Um, you know, I think actually we have exceptional uh, uh, biosecurity here in Australia, but um, and we have a lot of regulations now about importing honeybees and the like. But um, you know, pests, pests and diseases make it past biosecurity all the time, so. Uh, sooner or later, I think there is a feeling like it might get here, but for now we're fine. And how do these pests and invasive species get in? I mean, is it uh, how how is the the biosecurity breached? Um, yeah, shipping containers are, are the main um, culprit here. So these are uh, you know part of the honeybee life cycle is that they uh, during the reproductive phase will swarm away from the nest so at this point they're just really a ball of bees you know the queen and maybe a few hundred or thousand uh, workers uh, and they will form this swarm and they'll go off and they'll look for a new nest site you know in, in which to form a new colony and they're really very mobile at that phase of their life cycle and they'll just look often for like dark places to um, spend the night <laughs> Uh, and they end up on ships all the time. So if there's shipping containers sitting around, they might go in there um, and think that that is a place to build a nest or even just a place to hang out for a period while they're looking for a new nest site. Uh, and then the boat sets sail for Australia and they, they end up here. So biosecurity do pick them up Um periodically, not just the species I mentioned, but other species that are native to Asia um, at various ports around Australia. And 
Yep, just, you know, we, we were unlucky at least once with this incursion that's now taken hold um, up in the Cairns region. Uh, other ones have been picked off before they've taken hold, but it's another case where, you know, uh, protecting the very large border of Australia against, you know, insect pests is, is not an easy task. Yep. And these these are, you know, bees are very um, adaptable little creatures and, and pretty mobile. So, yeah, sometimes they slip past us. And in your area of, of looking, or, or one of your areas of looking at the the northeastern um, stingless bees being kept as pet. I mean, what's what's actually going on there? Are people just getting bored with cats and dogs? Like, what, what do you think's going on there? Um, where whereabouts whereabouts in the country are you, Damien? Of interest? I, I, I'm I'm in Hornsby, which is oh, um, okay. the up outer north uh, northwest of Sydney. Sydney yeah. You you are in um, excellent habitat to keep uh, some native bees. Oh wow! So I think if you uh, if, if you live in Sydney, um, or if you live in Sydney on the east coast, anywhere or anywhere north of Sydney, so I'm talking about um, the northern part of New South Wales or Queensland. Uh, or if you're in the Northern Territory or the Northern parts of WA, these are all um, uh, within the native range of our Australian stingless bees and you can absolutely keep them as pets. And they are just adorable pets. I mean, you watch them bringing in pollen and honey. They, you know, they pollinate the veggies that you're growing in your garden or whatever. Um, they're really quite therapeutic to just watch going about their daily business. They're not, um, they're not glorious big, you know, stripy bees, which is what I think a lot of people think of when they think of bees. They're uh, very small. They're just about five millimeters long. They're all black. Um, so some people mistake them for flies when they first observe them. But um, as you get to know them, and certainly if you keep a hive, I think you get quite attached to them quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, sticking to the the grimmer side of these populations, we uh, we heard there was recently a mass bee kill on the Murray in in May this year. Um, I mean, how does how do these events happen, and and what sort of effect can mass kill events have on on pollination and and the ecosystem? Um. Bees that we use for pollination, well, they can end up in the line of fire um, for, uh, you know, chemical treatments of crops. Um, obviously, beekeepers who rent their hives for the purposes of pollination um, would normally be uh, making, you know, making sure that the bees are absolutely not in the crop at the time that um, any kind of pesticides are being used or that, you know, you can shut the bees up in the hive or whatever. And, uh, and growers are well aware of this as, as well, you know, from a grower's perspective, you want, um, you want your beneficial insects like bees in your crop pollinating um, for the period that the flowers are uh, receptive. But then you also, uh, at other points in, um, you know, at other points you want to get rid of all the insects from your crop. They might be there eating the fruit or damaging it all with plants or whatever else. Uh, so there's always that kind of trade-off of getting rid of the pest insects, but protecting the beneficial insects um, 
And so, yeah, protecting bees in those circumstances is, you know, something that needs to be considered. And I guess there are mistakes sometimes. Again, I'm not familiar with this particular event, but. So is there anything that the general public is doing or can do that, uh, that could improve or, or um, avoid this a bit more? Uh, I think if we are talking about kind of, um, you know, pesticide use in crops and agricultural um, settings, then, you know, that's obviously, yeah, I, I feel like that's a debate for people who are growing crops and so on for those communities to have. And I think they are well aware and have those conversations all the time. Um, and of course, for um for commercial beekeepers, you know, they're, they're aware of all these issues as well. Um, in terms of the general public kind of out to care for bees, I know a lot of people are very interested in, in ways that they can help. Um, and, yeah, I think, um, well, my... My view is that probably uh, honeybees in Australia for now are doing fine, touch wood, <laughs> um, until, until Varroa turns up um, and that, that may never happen if we're lucky. But we have, a, we have pretty happy, healthy honeybee populations actually for the moment. Um, and things we do need to think about probably, and these are actually not issues specific to bees, but general kind of uh, conservation of our of our natural landscapes, um, which is going to protect everything within them, including bees. So, I mean, we have a, I mentioned the social bees before and the stingless bees being pets and so on, but Australia is home to, you know, somewhere around 2,000 or so species of native bee. Most of those are solitary bees, but they are nevertheless bees and they do the things bees do. So they collect nectar and pollen from flowers. They're incredibly important um, pollinators of uh, certainly of our, our forests and terrestrial ecosystems. And in some cases, they'll also um, contribute to crop pollination, make very important contributions in some cases. Uh, so, you know, I think there's there's so little known about our native bees um, that there's almost definitely uh, kind of conservation action that we could be taking there. And as a first step, probably it would just be trying to uh, trying to conserve our natural landscapes um, and try to as a first step, understand, you know, how many bee species we have and where they are and so on. Because my 2000 estimate is just, um, it's just a ballpark figure. We actually have no idea how many bee species we have. Um, we, we understand staggeringly little about them, actually. So in your studies, an app similar to the, the bird spotting app would be really, really useful in terms of getting our gang, the citizen scientists out there collecting this, spotting some of these. I guess it's a bit harder to spot some of these tiny little stingless bees, but, you know, if people were recording it and sending that data into you, that, that could make a big difference, couldn't it? Yeah, so uh, it's it's a good point, you know, how to harness the, the public's kind of love of bees. And I think for a lot of people who are otherwise not that excited about insects or arthropods, they a lot of people do like bees, um, 
but yes, we, you know, we do not have it as easy as, um, as the bird researchers, because birds are quite large and noisy and easy for the public to recognize. And, um, and we don't have nearly so many of them. Whereas bees are a bit trickier and I, I mean, just off the top of my head, I can't, I can't think of a very easy way um, for the public to kind of collect information on what bees are where. Certainly we have some really recognisable species, so maybe they'd be the ones to start with, yeah. I guess just seeing any insects and, 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 and people just uh, something pricks up their ears or their eyes about uh, a different insect that they'd never seen before and reporting it somewhere on an, on an insect um, type of app would be, would be useful. Yeah, or photo photographs in some cases. I mean, the one the one good thing about bees is that they um, so all bees collect uh, pollen to feed their young, um, and that means you see bees at flowers. So people who take photos of flowers, you know, if you sit patiently, a bee will turn up. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you've got a bee which well, they don't always stop, you know, flying to feed, but. Um, they do sometimes, will land on the flower. So you've got a momentarily stationary insect, which you could uh, try to take a photograph of. Uh, and actually, I mean, there are some amazing amateur photographers in Australia taking fantastic photographs of bees. Um, bees are now beautiful native flowers as well. So in that sense, there's some avenue for data collection, photographic data collection, which, um, uh, you know, then, then you've got the uh, potential to go back and ID the species afterwards from the photograph. But yes, it's still still a bit under under explored that avenue, I think. And do you think the attitude to so-called weeds and eradicating weeds has changed? Like, there's some sort of um, movements for letting the weed, the so-called weeds, native. Uh, wildflowers, things like that, um, just flourish because it's uh, it's better for the natural. Is that, is that an issue that um, that would make a difference if people let these what were traditionally in the English garden sense ugly weeds let them flourish and grow wild? Um, I think it it can. I mean, again, it sort of depends um, where you are. If you're in a very urban environment and there's not much. Um, else around, maybe there's not many trees, flowering trees and so on, uh, then absolutely. I mean, though, weeds weeds to us are probably not weeds to bees. And they, um, you know, most of the bees that we have in Australia are generalists. They'll happily feed on, on anything that gives them nectar and pollen. So, um, yes, I can certainly think that would be some circumstances where um, maintaining some kind of unkept green areas um, and letting things flower, whether they're weeds or not, is going to be good for bees. Um, yeah, but we there, there are other bees that are really thriving in urban environments, so it's, it's quite variable, actually. Wow, that's good to know, yeah. 
Um, lastly, I just uh, this is something that always made me curious. I mean, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of our conversation um, what interested you so much is the social side of bees and, and other insects. Um, there's some studies I've seen that have been done on, on this, you know, going deeper into their, their socialization and then being regarded as a, um, as a species being more advanced specifically for this social because of this socialization why is that i mean can human societies learn from this can we get better but by being more hive-minded uh well you'll sometimes see you know bees and other social insects you know the the colony referred to as a kind of super organism and i i think that that is a helpful concept often because you know an individual honeybee cannot survive on its own i mean it really is like a um, a, a piece of, you know, one one piece of a um, functional kind of colonial organism, and you know there are there are other examples in nature of um, of animals which have gone down this route, and I'm thinking of things like coral or something which are colonial. You know, they're not they're not the only ones, but I think because their behaviors are so complex and amazing, I mean. A lot of people are aware of the honeybee dance language. You know, they really communicate with each other in um, in ways that seem amazing to us. Um, I don't know that we need. I think we. I think we learn a lot about um, nature and um, and evolution from understanding social insects like bees. I don't know if they tell us that much about ourselves. I don't know that we should be replicating their society. <laughs> um, it's not nearly as harmonious. Once you dig a bit, it's not as harmonious as it looks. There's actually um, there's a lot of a lot of uh, conflict, uh, uh, conflict, sorry, and um, and brutality actually in uh, in social insect societies. But uh, we. We learn a lot about the natural world from studying them, absolutely. And that helps us understand ourselves better. Well, look, thanks very much for your time uh, today, Ros. It's been really, really enlightening for us and uh, we're really pleased that uh, we could get the, the, the topic of bees kicked off uh, in such a broad way. So is there anything you'd like to add in terms of what um, citizen scientists or, or just the general public who are interested, any sort of uh, links or places that they could go to to find out more, whether it's about your research or about general information about bees? Um, join. If, you, if you're really interested in bees or you just want to know more about them or you are in, in those tropical, subtropical parts of Australia um, all the way down to Sydney and you're interested in keeping the native stingless bees that I mentioned, um, there is the Australian um, Native Bee Association, which uh, was only formed a few years ago, but it's really got off to a like roaring start. And there are um, there are branches now in in quite a few major cities um, where you can get together with like-minded people and um, and talk about bees, basically. <laughs> uh, so the ANBA has a excellent website as well. Um, with lots of information. So it's a great place to start as well. Brilliant. Thanks, Roz. No worries at all. I'm really, really happy that um, bees uh, have, have been one of your chosen topics. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.